0: In the world. Before we start our Bible study, can I ask you a question? Sure. Like if you were a superhero, what superpower would you have? As you can imagine, I've given this some thought and I can't decide like would I want flight, Would I want super strength, Would I want invisibility. It's so hard to pick. And then, well, then there's the costume to think about. Like I want a really cool logo on the chest. You know, I'd want a cool mask or helmet, maybe both. And, uh, and then there's the secret identity to consider. You know, something like uh, Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark. That's what I'm talking about. And let's not forget a headquarters or a base. Like, like, imagine your very own Batcave or Fortress of Solitude. It would be amazing, right? Was anybody here into superheroes when you were a kid? I, I was into superheroes. Like, I like to watch superhero cartoons on TV Uh, Sometimes I would read superhero comic books, and, you know, if I'm keeping it real, sometimes I would even pretend that I was a superhero. Now, kids today have got it made. You know, Miranda was talking earlier about how last year we spent nine months on the road, and, of course, we're just starting out on a six-month tour now. That means lots and lots of hours of drive time. And so our 11-year-old, Adessa, we call her Dez, she passes a lot of that time with an iPad. And uh, that's just why I say kids today have a maid, because between their cell phones and their tablets and their gaming systems, I mean, they're never more than one click away from being able to pretend to be almost anyone or to do almost anything. But when I was a kid, if I wanted to play superhero, mom did not hand me an iPad. She handed me a tattered old bath towel and a safety pin. I'd wrap that towel around my shoulders and mom would help me get it pinned up tight and hours of fun would follow now kids today would get like five minutes out of that and the first four would be spent complaining about how lame it was but we could make it work all day long right isn't it true though that even as adults there's something inside of us that wants to be heroic isn't there something inside of you that wants to do something heroic that wants to to live heroically that's what we're going to talk about today so if you brought your Bible I see that many of you did that is so awesome to bring your Bible to church Turn to Joshua chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today, and check this out, we're going to meet a woman who totally did what I'm talking about, a woman who did something heroic, a woman who learned to live heroically, and from her life, we're going to learn several things that we can do, that we must do, really, if we're going to live heroically too. So even as you're settling into your place, Joshua chapter 2, let me just pray and ask Father that you would speak to us through your word. It's such an amazing thing to open this book and not just open any book, but open your word to know that though this is an ancient story, to be sure, it's a true story that these are real places and real people. These things really happened. And and Lord, as we read it, something special happens when your Holy Spirit speaks into our hearts and our minds and our lives. We invite you to do that. We want to live heroically. Speak to us about that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we're going to live heroically, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to let go of the past. So look at Joshua 2, verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now this is a generation after the Exodus. If you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie, right? The the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Maybe you went the animated route and saw the prince of Egypt. The point being that this story takes place right after that story. So Joshua has succeeded Moses. The people have crossed the river and they're ready now to conquer the land that God has promised to them when they come to this place called Acacia Grove. If that place name sounds familiar, it totally should. It was there in Acacia Grove a generation before that the men of Israel, their fathers, were seduced by the women of Moab And long story short, as a result of their unfaithfulness to God and their unfaithfulness to their families, 24,000 people died. I mean, that means that some people went forward without a husband. Others went forward without a father or a son. Some went forward without a brother. And still others went forward without an uncle or a nephew. And you know that every single year on the anniversary of this event, they would be reminded You know that every single year when the birthday of someone they would lost rolled around, they'd be reminded, and you know for sure, as they gathered in this place where all of this stuff went down not so long before, that they would be reminded about how the choices of one generation affect the next. It makes me think about how my parents' choices affected me. And it challenges me to think about how the choices that I'm making are affecting my daughters and now granddaughter. That's right. You're looking at a relatively newly minted grandpa and Mimi. We have an 18 month old granddaughter in Oklahoma City. She's amazing. Her name is Ever. She's got some health issues. If you think of it, pray for our granddaughter ever. But this challenges me to think about how the choices that I'm making are affecting even her or will affect even her. You know, maybe your family isn't entirely different from mine. Your family of origin. Maybe just like me, there's been something in your family that has happened over and over and over again. Something that has happened generation after generation. Something harmful. Something hurtful. Anybody know what I'm talking about? In my family, that thing has been alcoholism. My dad was an alcoholic. If he was here this morning, he would probably describe himself as a recovering alcoholic, just because that's the language that lots of people use today. But I'm, I'm happy to tell you that my dad's been sober now for years. But don't get me wrong, it came at great price. You know, he didn't get sober before it, it cost him his marriage to my mother. And before it nearly cost him his second marriage. But to see the way my dad has put his life back together is unbelievable. Like, like his life is so much better since he got sober. And, uh, and I'm really proud of my dad. But you know, it wasn't just my dad, it was his dad. That's right, my grandfather too was an alcoholic. I always feel awkward talking about grandpa because, well, when you talk about a loved one, especially a loved one who's already passed, don't you try to picture them? Don't you, don't you see them in your mind the way you remember them? But I have to be honest, I'm struggling even now to remember what my grandfather looked like. Truthfully, I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I saw him in my entire life. and. And it's not because of a lack of opportunity in in the sense that he lived well into my adulthood, certainly well into my 30s. There's no reason why we couldn't have had a relationship, no reason why I shouldn't have a whole bunch of memories of special times with him. But instead, I can barely see his face. You see, he and my grandmother were married and divorced twice to each other. They got married, they got divorced, they tried it again and failed again. And no doubt, his alcoholism was a major reason why just like with my own dad. So for my dad, well, that meant a lot of things, right? Things that readily come to mind. It meant he grew up largely without a father figure in the home. It meant that he grew up largely in poverty. My dad and his brothers, my uncles, lived with their mother, my grandmother, who lived with her own mother, my great-grandmother, in public housing. um, The projects in San Bernardino, California, known as Waterman Gardens. And you know that had to affect the way my dad raised me and my sister Cheryl. It's been some years now since my my grandpa passed away. I mean, maybe close to 20 years. I was uh, pastoring Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas at that time, the church that I planted uh, in 1991 and led for 18 years. And and, uh, Bill will tell you, uh, every year we have a conference. Guys come from all across, pastors from all across the country, even other countries, for this annual conference. In fact, the conference is this week. Um, In Southern California, but so I remember because I was here for that. I was in Southern California for that conference from Austin, Texas And as I sometimes did I stuck around an extra day or two to visit my dad in Orange County So I'm at my dad's house. It's maybe two months since he buried his own father and we're talking about that My dad's describing for me what it was like to travel to Stockton where my grandfather spent his final years What it was like to enter his house? what it was like to go through his personal belongings and just then my dad asked me if I would wait right there while he went in the other room and he came back just a short time later he was carrying a box want to talk a little bit about this box because well I have one just like it and I'm guessing some of you do too do you have a box It could even be a drawer but a special place where you put keepsakes mementos things that you want to hang on to things that you've taken with you from one living space to the next can you relate to that Mine is a small wooden box that says San Diego on the front. I got it when I was a kid on a field trip to San Diego. And inside that box is my high school class ring, some coins I've picked up um, in travels around the world, a couple real cool rocks, you know, and some odds and ends. But, But so I have that box. I have to admit, I haven't seen it in like three years. That box is in a storage unit in Austin, Texas. But I know it's there, but you can relate. You have a box like that, some of you. So Grandpa had one of these boxes. And my dad, he, he brought the box in and took the lid off and started moving things around inside the box and then, and then began taking things out. He took out a paper. It was actually a divorce certificate from one of my grandparents' two divorces. He reached back inside and took out another picture of my grandfather with my uncle Bill on his knee when Bill was a baby. Bill was later killed in action in Vietnam. And then, then he reached in took out my kindergarten picture and my first grade picture and my second grade picture. My mom did like moms have done forever. When those school pics would come home, she cut out the little wallet-sized ones and sent them off to loved ones wherever they might be, and there they were in his box. My mind was blown. It still is. You know, I had no idea that he'd ever received those pictures, much less kept them. I have to admit, I felt conflicted about it. There was a part of me that felt really, really good that I made Grandpa's box. Then there was another part of me that felt really, really bad. And that was the part of me that realized that whereas my box, and probably your box too, is a box filled with memories, his was a box filled with regrets. His was a box filled with reminders of all the things that he'd had but lost. All the things that he might have enjoyed right up until the end of his life, but instead didn't get to enjoy at all. And so whether we're talking about my grandfather's story, or whether we're talking about the backstory to Joshua chapter 2, it's a reminder that there has to come a time in our lives when we say enough is enough. That it doesn't matter what's happened, or how many times it's happened, or how long it's happened, or whether we ourselves have struggled in the same way as I have. That we get to say it stops here, it stops now, it stops with this generation, it stops with me. Can you feel the mood in Acacia Grove? Another similar observation has to do with the spies. You see it there, how, how two spies were sent. And this too takes us back a generation, doesn't it? Because Moses sent spies as well. Moses sent 12 spies. And if you know the story, you know that 10 of those spies came back Uh, with a negative report right 10 guys came back and they're like there's no way we can take the land like I don't care who God says we are I don't care what God says we can do there's no way we should even try and two guys came back with a positive report one of those was Joshua by the way and they're like oh we still got this like we're exactly who God says we are we can do exactly what God says we can do why are we wasting time having this conversation we should be taking the land right now Sadly, as is often the case, even in a community of faith like a local church, the negative voices carried the day. And as a result, an entire generation was doomed to die in the wilderness. Their sentence? 40 years with time served. For the best part of 40 years, they would wander through the desert, waiting for everyone of a certain age to die. That's a lot of funerals. I mean, we can do the math. If there were 1.2 million adults, and that's a conservative estimate, and if they used every single hour of daylight to bury people, we're talking about funerals year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, like seven or eight times per hour they were burying someone. And you know that every time another body slid beneath the sand, they would be reminded about what happens when we listen to the wrong voices. When we listen to anyone who says anything other than what God says about who we are and about what we can do. Has that been your experience in life? You know, as we travel around the country and talk to people, we hear stories about people who feel like that's been their whole life. Like for as long as they can remember, they've been told a negative story about themselves from the people around them. For you, it could have been a parent or a sibling, it could have been a, a teacher or a coach. A youth pastor, a Sunday school teacher in your adult life. It could be someone that you work uh, with or someone that you work for. It could even be your spouse. But for as long as you can remember, you've been beat down by the words of someone who says something different than what God does about you. And if that's been your experience, I'm so sorry. That can be really hard to overcome. Isn't it true, though, that our biggest problem probably isn't with the story they tell us about us, but with the story we tell ourselves? You know how it goes. It sounds like this inside our head, like I'm not enough. I'm not handsome enough or beautiful enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not intelligent enough, educated enough, trained enough, cool enough, spiritual enough it's one more of those things where there has to come a time in our lives when we say enough is enough when we say that going forward we're not going to listen to anyone even if it's us we're not going to listen to anyone who says anything other than what god says about who we are and about what we can do can you feel the mood in acacia grove well with that backstory let's rejoin the narrative it says that these spies were sent to gather intelligence especially of the city called jericho now if you Google Jericho a website will come up where they claim that Jericho is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world and on an Israel tour you'll often visit Jericho I did many times leading groups from Calvary Austin Um, of course what we're most interested in is what it was like in ancient times right so so maybe I should point out that Jericho was heavily fortified with not one but two walls around the city Apparently, the king of Jericho had promised voters that if elected, he would build a wall. And Moab would pay for it. So up the wall went. Now, I mean, whatever you think of walls in modern times, and that's not even what I'm, what I'm talking about here now. In ancient times, it really was a matter of security. In the ancient world, in ancient Jericho... A wall was the difference between a good night's sleep and getting killed in your sleep. Your wife raped, your kids taken as slaves. That's the world they lived in. So they had not just one wall, but two. And in fact, what would often happen, and what happened in Jericho, is that if you built a wall and you ran out of space, what do you do? You build a second wall. And then the space between the walls? Suburbs. Old Jericho, New Jericho. So get that picture in your mind. We're going to double back to it a little bit later, but the spies... No sooner did their feet hit the ground in Jericho than they're found in the red light district. What? Like, if you were new to the Bible, you would never see that coming. You would never get to the end of the page as they're entering the city and go, I know where they're going to land. No way. There's no way, right? Now... It's like we've gone in a split second from talking about the world's oldest city to talking about the world's oldest profession. How did that happen? How did we get here? I don't want you to have the wrong idea. I don't think the spies were at Rahab's place to get under the covers. They were there under cover. The success of their mission depended upon not drawing attention to themselves. I imagine that as they traveled that day, they joined or were joined by others traveling to Jericho, that they entered the city through open city gates as part of a larger group. They followed the flow of traffic to those parts of the city that people went to, and and they found themselves where they did. But we probably shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the value that they might have placed in Rahab as an intelligence asset. I think of it. There's no telling who Rahab knew or what. It was reasonable to think that she might have access to information that no one else they were going to have an audience with would have access to. So it makes perfect sense that they would want to talk to her. And if there was anything inappropriate about their visit to her place, the Bible doesn't tell us so. But don't you love that the Bible tells us the truth about Rahab? I love it for so many reasons. Can I share just one and then keep moving? I love it because today in our culture at large, but also in our churches, we hear so much about authenticity, about transparency, about vulnerability. And like so many other things we talk about at church, we are so much better at talking about it than we are at practicing it. You know, if you're like me, if you've been doing church for a long time, you know, if over a lifetime you've had a number of church homes, then, then you're going to know exactly where I'm going with this because, like me, you were someplace at some point when someone got brave and found their voice and told their story or talked about their struggles. Or admitted to having some questions or some doubts. And then, and then you watched in horror as the people around them shamed them, shushed them, and shunned them. And you learned very quickly that church is not always a safe place to keep it real, no matter what we say. But shouldn't it be? And again, if you were new to the Bible and you stumbled on a story like this, wouldn't you assume that it would be? When you started to this story, you would think to yourself, oh, thank goodness, You know, finally, I have found a place where I can tell the truth about myself, where I can talk about my experiences and my struggles and my mistakes and my sins and all of it. Now, I'm so thankful for you guys that you're in a church that values as a distinctive part of its culture grace. Let's just say that someday we were all together in a place where where that wasn't the case. I don't think we'd have to wait around for somebody at the top to figure it out and fix it top-down, I think we could fix it bottom-up. I think, I think we could do it grassroots. You know how? Two things. Number one, we all agree to be brave and tell our stories. Number two, we all agree that when it's the next person's turn, we absolutely will not shame, shush, or shun them. If we all got on the same page of that, we could transform church culture wherever we found ourselves. Now, in fairness to Rahab, she may have done what she did as a matter of survival. Am I saying that what she did was okay? No. It was not okay. Okay just like so many things that I've done, are not okay. But let's just think about it for a minute. Let's think about what it was like for her. In the ancient world, it was tough. You know, in modern times, we talk about things like, like equal pay. We've come a long way since ancient Jericho, and yet we've still got work to do, right? So it's good that we're having that conversation. But if you were a woman in ancient Jericho, and you weren't married, and you didn't have family helping with you, with your financial needs, you know, meeting those needs that you had... You were in a world of hurt. You were in a struggle to survive. It's not like Rahab could just put on her career hat and reinvent herself. She couldn't just you know, create a, a, log, a, a LinkedIn account and start networking. The ancient world didn't work like that. And so what I'm saying is that many times in the ancient world, and maybe, maybe more often than we suppose in the modern world, There have been women so desperate to find a way to survive another day, another week, another month, another year that they've thought about doing things or maybe even done things that that up until then they never would have dreamed of doing. I guess I'm saying a couple things. I'm saying however upsetting it is for us to learn this about her, and it is upsetting, right? It should be. However upsetting it is for us to learn this, that's not half as upsetting as it was for her to live it. And the other thing I'm saying is that aren't we learning... That life is so much better when we take even five minutes to put ourselves in someone else's shoes before we decide that they don't matter, that they don't count, that they don't have value. Or that we know everything there is to know about what they're doing or why they're doing it because we don't. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she let go of the past. Think of the guilt from her past. Think of all the guys, all the hookups. Do you have a past? Are there skeletons in your closet? I mean, the truth is we've all done things that we're ashamed of, embarrassed by, things we feel guilty about, right? But one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in life is when we allow guilt from our past to rob us of the future that God has for us. And you know why we do that? We do that because we don't get forgiveness. I don't mean that you haven't received it. If you're a follower of Christ, you've certainly received forgiveness forgiveness. What I mean is we don't get it up here, that, that we struggle to wrap our minds around the idea that God has forgiven us, or, or as we sometimes say that he forgives and forgets. If the Bible doesn't say that explicitly, it certainly says it implicitly. Think of that Bible verse that talks about God dumping our sin into the sea. I love that verse. In fact, I want you to get a visual in that verse right now. I want you to imagine that God at this very moment is rounding up all of my sin. That's right, God is rounding up every sin that Alan Rigg has ever committed. Make yourselves comfortable, this could take a while. We're waiting. We're waiting. It's awkward, I know. It's my sin. Okay, he's got it. Now, he's dumping my sin into the Mediterranean Sea. I want you to picture the storm surge. Like beaches all around the Mediterranean are disappearing. (laughs) Coastal cities are being flooded with water as my sin is sinking into the deep, dark depths of the Mediterranean in a field of bubbles. Finally, it hits the seabed, sending silt in every direction that only slowly settles until, finally, my sin is covered. And no one can see it or find it. And no one's ever going to dredge it up. Not even God Himself, because He promises not to. Now, with that visual in mind, do you think there could ever come a time in our lives that we're allowing guilt from our past to rob us of the future that God has for us that God might look at us and say, I'm over it, why aren't you? Have you allowed a handful of guilty memories to control your life, to define you, to tell you who you are. Those things you feel guilty about, they're a part of your story, but they're not your whole story. God is still writing your story. And this is one more of those things where we get to say enough is enough. Going forward, I'm not going to live from that guilty place anymore. I'm going to live from this forgiven place instead. But it wasn't only the guilt. I think also there was hurt from her past. I think she'd had a falling out with her family. We're going to learn in verse 13 that she did have family in Jericho. Now, is this conjecture on my part? Absolutely it's conjecture on my part. Totally 100% conjecture. But is it not at least possible that if she was living the life that she was, if if as best we can tell they weren't helping her financially, if as best we can tell they were doing nothing to rescue her from the life that she was stuck in, is it not at least possible that they'd had a falling out? That she was hurt, that they were hurt, that there was more than enough hurt to go around. There usually is. Have you been hurt? Is there anger, is there bitterness, is there resentment flowing like an undercurrent in your life? Truth is we've all been hurt. And you know why hurt from the past robs us of the future that God has for us? Because we don't give forgiveness. So guilt robs us because we don't get forgiveness. Hurt robs us because we don't give it. You've heard that saying, right? Hurt people, hurt people. You guys ever heard that? It's really true, isn't it? Here's what you and I do. When we're hurt, this is our postures, like this. Like, like you know, you hurt me. No, I'm not going to forgive you. You owe me. You owe it to me to to like be miserable for a really long time. Like, you owe it to me to be miserable for the rest of your life. You know, It gets so bad, we're laying awake in bed at night. We're not counting sheep. We're telling ourselves stories like this. Like, oh, I hope I never see them again. No, well, I hope I do, because I've got a thing or two to say to them. What if I ran into them like at the hardware store, the grocery store? I'd act like I didn't even know them. That'd be good. Well, no, because I've got these zingers I've been working on, so I'd have to acknowledge them. So I'd go up to them and I'd say this, and they'd be speechless. It'd be awesome. Well, no, because they got more zingers, so they'd have to respond. So I'd say this, and they'd say that, and they'd be really stupid, and so then I'd follow with this. Meanwhile, here they are at home. I mean, they don't even know we're thinking that stuff. Or worse, they know, and they totally do not care. This is why we say that forgiveness is a gift that we give ourselves. When I forgive the person who's hurt me, I effectively end any control that they have over my life. Now, if you've been hurt recently or deeply I know the question you're going to text at the end of the sermon. Who are you and who invited you? I can see it coming now. Because it feels insulting. It feels hurtful. It feels like being wounded all over again when someone who doesn't know, when someone who doesn't get it tells you that you need to forgive. Maybe it would help if I differentiated between two things because I'm talking about one and not the other. I'm talking about forgiveness, not reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two. For that reason alone, it's not always possible. Now you'll hear that in church. Can I add something you won't hear as often in church? Not only is reconciliation not always possible, but it isn't always, not 100% of the time, is it desirable. Think about my dad in recovery. There were people that he probably didn't need to hang around with. For those of you that have heard Miranda's story of uh, escaping domestic violence, for her and for our daughter Edessa, reconciliation would not even have been safe. But while it takes two people to reconcile, it takes one person to forgive. You can. I can. All by ourselves decide to let go of past hurt, to let go of this sense that someone owes us. Now, I know I know that you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, "Yeah, but if I forgive them, I'm saying that what they did wasn't wrong. I'm saying that what they did didn't hurt." No, you'd be saying no such thing. You know what you'd be saying? You'd be saying what you did was wrong, what you did, did hurt, but holding this relational IOU over your head is tearing me up, so I'm tearing it up. I refuse to lose even one more day of my life to this feeling of angst that I have lived with 24-7 for as long as I can remember over this unresolved relational thing. Guys, this is one more thing where we get to say, enough is enough. You know, have you, have you allowed a handful of hurtful memories to define you? to control you, to tell you who you are. Those things that you feel hurt about, they're part of your story, but they're not your whole story. God is still writing your story. And so it's one more of those things where we get to say that going forward, we're not going to live from this hurt place anymore. We're going to live from this forgiving place instead. And so to live heroically, we have to let go of the past. The second thing, and I promise we'll pick up our pace, is that we have to face our fears. Will you look with me again at Joshua 2? Picking it up in verse 2, it says, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the spies have been followed. They had been found out. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she faced her fears. Fear is such a universal thing. I mean, when I talk about it, I'm talking to everybody, right? It affects all of us to some degree, on some level. Have you guys ever seen that website, phobialist.com? It's insane. You'll have to check it out. I mean, they've cataloged over 500 phobias. It's like you're scared of stuff you hadn't even thought of yet. Is anybody here afraid of heights? Yeah, so you're not even lifting your hand all the way up over your head, because that would be, like, (laughs) too far off the ground. Um, Anybody have an unnatural fear of needles? Like, nobody really likes to get a shot, but for you, that's a really bad day, a needle. What about, like, an unnatural fear of spiders? Like, for you, that's the real home invasion is to find a spider... And who's, who's afraid to raise their hand in public? Okay, you pass, you pass. We've got a bunch of people that just passed. You guys can go to the lobby, wherever there's coffee to be had. The rest of us have some more work to do. Um, I'm thinking about this picture of my adult daughter, Lauren. Um, so she's the, the new mom, and uh, she and her husband are um, in Oklahoma City where he stir- serves on the staff of a church. And, and so when she was a girl um, growing up, she had this, the sphere of people in costumes, which is why I thought it was a really bad idea the year that she wanted to celebrate her birthday at Chuck E. Cheese. Where the whole point is to have a person in a costume come out to the table, right? So, so this picture I'm thinking about, it was taken right at that moment when the rat was stalking the birthday girl. You know, Chuck moving in for the kill. And so Lauren has jumped up in my arms, man. She's holding tight onto Daddy. I'm holding tight onto her and her eyes Bigger than the pizzas on the table, man. It was unbelievable. I still laugh when I think about that picture. Whether it was Lauren's childhood fear of people in costumes or my nearly crippling fear of a coffee shortage, we've all got stuff that freaks us out, right? Fear is so powerful. It's such a powerful emotion. Like, have you ever been so scared that you did something you wouldn't normally do? Totally done that. Or so scared that you didn't do something you normally would do? I've I've totally done that too. Maybe that's why the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Did you know that? I mean, there's a lot of commands in the Bible. But the one that appears more than any other is do not be afraid. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. But, you know, I created this physical timeline, right? Like we've been talking about guilt and hurt as being over here in our past. We usually think of fear as being over here in our future. We're afraid this is going to happen or that's not going to happen. Don't make the mistake of thinking these things are not connected. You know what I'm learning? I'm learning that in life, if I don't make peace with the past, I will almost always fear the future. And Rahab, she had every reason to be afraid. She was about to risk her life hiding the spies and lying for them, which raises an ethical issue, right? Like, was that okay? Was that not okay? We don't have a lot of time to spend on this. We're, we're racing, you know, through the text. So let me just really quick give you my take, okay? That way when you leave, you're not like, that rig guy is such a chicken. He just didn't even give us anything. So I'll give you a real quick take. I would compare what Rahab did to what people in Europe during World War II did. People who took Jews into their homes and hid them. Maybe they even built a a phony wall that they could hide behind. And and then when Nazis came knocking on the door asking whether there were Jews present, they lied. They said no. They chose life-saving over truth-telling when it wasn't possible to do both. Two absolute moral obligations came into unavoidable conflict and they chose the greater good, I believe, without guilt. I feel the same way about what Rahab did. Now we could totally disagree about that and be friends, but I just at least wanted to give you my take on it. And so, you know, gosh, Rahab, she could have played it safe. We've all played it safe, right? I mean, have you ever played it safe only to regret it later? Sure you have. Remember that time you struck out looking? And all these years later, you still think about, oh, if only I'd taken a cut at that pitch. What about that time that like you knew the answer, but you could not get your voice to come out of your mouth? Or that time that, you know, the one where, where you uh, wanted to volunteer, but it's like there was lead weights on your arm. You know, you couldn't lift the pencil to, to put your name on a roster. There was a time that you couldn't decide about the, the house or the car and somebody else got it or that other time time that you were so close to telling someone how you really felt about them but maybe you chickened out you never had another opportunity you know Rahab she could have played it safe she could have refused to hide the spies she could have refused to lie for them instead she risked the life that she had the only life that she knew for the life that she wanted to live heroically, you always have to risk your life as it is. And that is crazy scary, which is why we're talking about facing our fears. So again, the pushback. You might be thinking, well, Alan, that sounds really risky. Do I look like a risk taker to you? Is that what you're thinking? Are you one of those people who would describe yourself as having a low risk tolerance or maybe no risk tolerance at all? I'm not buying it. I was in a bookstore not so long ago. You guys remember those? They had shelves, these things with pages. Really cool. I like them a lot. So I was in one of those, and I took a book off the shelf, and I looked at the title. The title was The 100 Most Dangerous Things in Everyday Life and What to Do About Them. Do not read that book. I mean, for real, that book wrecked my mind. I did not know that every year in the United States, more people are killed by teddy bears than by grizzly bears. Who knew? Like a button can come off. You can have a choking incident. Did you know that every year in the United States, 40,000 people are injured by their television set? Now, I have to admit, more than once, we've been watching AFD, America's Funniest Videos, and seen a couple of kids roughhousing, and they're rolling across the room, and they, they roll right into a piece of furniture that starts to wobble, and a, a TV can fall off, you can have a crushing injury. Against my better judgment, I'll give you one more example. Did you know that every year in the United States, 60,000 people are injured using the toilet? Right? So don't tell me you're not a risk taker. Unless you're prepared to hold it forever. The question is not whether to risk, but what. So listen, will you risk the life that you have for the life that you want, the life that God wants for you? Or are you going to risk the life that you want, the life that God wants for you, to hold on to the life that you have? The idea is to face your fears. Like, what would you do tomorrow if you weren't afraid? In the verses we're about to read, um, Like in verse 9, Rahab uses fear words, terror, and faint-hearted. In verse 11, she uses fear phrases like, Our hearts melted, and neither did there remain any courage. But you know that when you get to the New Testament and you read about Rahab, it says nothing about her fear and everything about her faith. Which completely blows up what we think about heroes. We assume that heroes feel no fear, but Rahab was scared out of her mind. So it must not be that heroes feel no fear. It must be that heroes feel fear but refuse to be controlled by it. This is a game changer. Remember that that most common command in the Bible was, do not be afraid. That tells us, among other things, that there is a way of being where though we feel fear like everyone else with a pulse, we refuse to be controlled by it. Imagine for yourself a a life that's not controlled by fear, thoughts that aren't fueled by fear, future plans that aren't formed in fear. If we're going to live heroically, we let go of the past, we face our fears, and finally we believe. Verse 8. We're going to really read fast now. Tighten up the belt. Here we go. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and to spare my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Now, we've got more to read, but quickly, let your eyes fall on verse 11 and see what Rahab said. She spoke of one God, singular. She spoke of a personal God when she used the pronoun your. And she spoke of an all-powerful everywhere present at once God which she described him like this, quote, in heaven above and on earth beneath, end quote. This is the language of faith. Rahab had come to believe. And so picking it up in verse 14, so the men answered her, our lives for yours if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. And look, verse 15, it says not once but twice that she lived on the city wall. So I'm coming over here because you and I were hanging out together today, and we are on the approach to Jericho we can see both walls, the inner wall, the outer wall. We don't really care right now about the inner wall. We're focused on the outer wall where Rahab lived. Go home, check three sources, get three different descriptions. Here's one. It might be that it was about a 15-foot earthen retaining wall, and on top of that, about a 25-foot brick wall. So you see Rahab's window, right? Let's make the approach together. We're going to walk right up to the wall, and as we get there, we're looking straight up at Rahab's window. We're looking up. What, like 40 feet, right? Which raises a question. What in the world was Rahab doing with a 40 or 50 foot rope laying in the house? I mean, did everybody in Jericho keep a 50 footer in the coffee table? Did only people living in the wall keep a rope on a hook by the window? I don't know, but I'm guessing that these were not the first men to make a hasty escape from Rahab's place. Just throwing that out there. Now, she wasn't letting them go anywhere until she had a deal, which raises a better question than the rope question, as entertaining as that is, at least to me. And that is, why didn't she go with them? She could have led them to a cave in the hill country of Judah. Then when it was safe, she could have followed them to Acacia Grove. What if they didn't come back? Or what if they came back but didn't keep the deal? Or what if before they came back, Before they could come back and keep the deal, she was found out. I mean, they would have killed her for sure if they knew, in Jericho, what she was up to. There's only one reason. Her family. But not so fast. We're talking about that family that, as best we can tell, she had nothing to do with. That family that, as best we can tell, wanted nothing to do with her or she with them. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she believed. And I believe that she had come to believe. You know, not unless she believed in God and she'd come to believe in God... Not unless she believed in herself, by which I mean the woman that God was making her. And not unless she believed in the future, her future, but not just the future that God was forming for her, but for other people too. I mean, think about it. Seriously, she had so many reasons not to care about anyone's future but her own. She'd been overlooked by... The eligible bachelors of Jericho, she'd been used by immoral men from far and wide. She'd apparently been abandoned by her own family. Who would blame her for wanting to get out and for never looking back? But the idea is to believe God for a big future that makes us and others bigger. As Christians, don't we love to talk about the future? We love to talk about having vision, for example. We've got vision for our marriage or vision for our business, vision at church, vision for our ministry. We talk about having a God-given dream. So here's the deal. If your God-given dream is only big enough for you, that's not God's dream for you. God's dream for you will always be so big that there's room in it for you and for others. And Rahab is the most amazing case in point. We're going to finish by talking about that. Anybody that has a question, this might be the time to, to start texting it for our short Q&A at the end. But I hope, that, I hope that I'll maintain your attention too because I want you to hear this. I want you to understand that, that Rahab, well, when you get to chapter 6, when the battle of Jericho, Jericho goes down, you discover that Rahab and her family were in fact spared. And then just two verses later, it tells us that at the time this book was written, when Joshua was written, that Rahab was still alive and well and living as a part of their community. How awesome is that? Incredible, right? As great as that is, that's nothing compared to this. Because you get to the end of the Old Testament, and then you turn through those blank pages between the Testaments, and then you turn to the first book of the New Testament, and the first chapter of the first book. And the first verses of the first chapter, and there you find a tree. But not just any tree, a family tree. And not even just any family tree, it's Jesus' family tree. And this is the most amazing tree ever. I've got to describe it for you. It has these huge branches that go off in every direction, and on each branch is carved the name of a woman or a man who lived heroically. And on one branch, for everyone to see, are A-H-A-B, Rahab. You know what this means, right? Have you ever thought it all the way through? It means that not only had Rahab become a part of their community, it means that Rahab had fallen in love. It means that she got married. It means that she had kids who had kids who had kids until finally one of her descendants was Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world who many see in the color of the cord that she was told to tie in her window. That scarlet cord suggesting the blood that Jesus would one day shed on the cross to make all of this cool stuff that we're talking about possible for you and for me. Oh my goodness. I mean, clearly, had Rahab, clearly Rahab, that is, had like this remarkable ability, right? To believe God for a bigger, better future. But do you think that even Rahab could have imagined this? From prostitute to mother. Makes me wonder like how long? How long had Rahab worn a label that said prostitute? And God He just comes along and He takes hold of the corner of that label and listen, rip! And in its place He puts a new label that says mother. You know, I alluded to it this morning in the past. Some of you have heard Miranda share her testimony of escaping domestic violence and of being divorced and what that was like for her. I had a very a very similar experience nine years ago, pastoring Calvary Austin, when my wife left me and our then 17-year-old daughter. It was just Lauren and I that senior year. And uh, like Miranda, I lost everything. Man, I lost my marriage. I lost my ministry. I lost all of my material things. I remember remember returning my car. I remember coming home and finding the foreclosure notice on the door of my house. We, we both know what it's like to lose everything. We both know what it's like to live a labeled life and to have some people who won't ever let us forget. And God comes along and He takes hold of the corner of Miranda's divorce label. And listen. rip. And in its place, he puts a new label that says wife, my wife. And he takes hold of the corner of my divorce label and listen, rip. And he puts in its place a new label that says husband. What label do you need to hear God ripping from you this morning? Failure, rip. Sinner, rip. Loser, rip. And what label do you need to see God putting in its place? You know, in just a moment, I'm going to field any questions that might come. But can I say this? Can I say that? I've got a suggestion for you when you get home today. Isn't that thoughtful of me to plan the whole rest of your day for you? That's how I roll. When you get home today, I want to encourage you to find a tattered old bath towel and a safety pin. And wrap that towel around your shoulders and pin it up close. And begin to live heroically as you let go of past guilt and hurt, as you face your fears, feeling them fully but refusing to be controlled by them, and as you believe God for a bigger, better future for you, but not just for you, for the people around you. All right. Well, Father, thank you again for this wonderful time with the saints in Napa. And Father, we pray that as we go today, you would fill us with your spirit. Fill us with hope. Lord, help us to walk out these doors just sensing that You are at work in us and through us in remarkable ways. And Lord, that our best days are ahead of us in our own lives, um, you know, in our church, in our ministry, in our marriage, in our jobs. Lord, that there's so many reasons, so much of a reason to feel hopeful about the amazing things that You're going to do in answer to prayer and as we obey and walk with You. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.